Hello, welcome to Farmgate. I'm Finlow Castain, the chief editor of 8.9 Hectares and founder of the Food and Global Security Network. A new investigation by Lighthouse Reports has targeted the powerful European farming lobby group Copacajaca, which they say is losing legitimacy even as it stymies the EU's green agenda and hoovers up public funds. Copacajaca has dominated the European Union's agricultural policy for more than half a century, and on the strength of its history and claim to represent all farmers, it enjoys privileged access to the EU you at all levels of its policy making. In this programme, we'll explore some of the issues raised by the Lighthouse Report's investigation, which is called Europe's Potemkin Lobby, and we'll also think about the legitimacy and the policy role of the National Farmers Union, the largest farmers organisation in the United Kingdom. I'm joined by Thin Lay Wynn, co-author of Europe's Potemkin Lobby, and by Jimmy Woodrow, the Executive Director of Pasture for Life in the UK. Welcome both. Thanks very much. Thin, can I come to you first? What is Copa Kajaka and why was Lighthouse Reports investigating it? Thanks very much for having us, um, Finlow. So Copacajica is the oldest, biggest and most powerful farm lobby in the European Union. Like you said, it's been around for you know more than half a century. It was established at the inception of the Common Agricultural Policy, or the CAP, um, as we know it, which is a system of subsidies for agriculture in the bloc. Um, so that long history has helped Copacajeca to sort of like take on this you know role as the self-proclaimed voice of European farmers and agri-cooperatives in Brussels. They started out as COPA, which represents farmers, and then the Cojeca arm, which is uh, cooperatives. And then they merged in the early 1960s, right? And like you said, they have been saying that they represent more than 22 million farmers and their families. Let's note that is the amount of farmers in all of the European Union, according to official data. What this means is that by saying that they represent more than 22 million farmers and their families and that they are the united voice of farmers, what this means is that politicians, bureaucrats and other lobby groups listen to what they have to say and take that as what farmers want and need, you know, sort of like the arbiter of what should happen when it comes to agricultural policymaking. So we really wanted to find out if this claim to power is legitimate, because one of the missions for the Food Systems Newsroom at Lighthouse Reports is to look at structural inequalities and power imbalance that we know are inherent in the food systems today. So, of course, it was a natural progression for us to look into Copacajeca. So just before we go on, just tell me a bit more about Lighthouse Reports, if you wouldn't mind. So this is a sort of a group of journalists that are doing the kind of investigative work, I think, that even sort of big broadsheets might find quite difficult to fund. Is that essentially it? That's one way of putting at it. But, you know, what we like to say is Lighthouse Reports is a collaborative, you know, non-profit journalism outlet that is focused on public interest reporting. We're not a publishing platform ourselves. So what that gives us is the freedom to really dig deep into topics that we think are really important and are in the public interest, spend months uh, working on these issues and then work with media partners um, all over the world, mainly Europe, but we also have partners all over the world to then publish um, these articles in different languages, in different countries. You know, for this particular investigation, the idea itself was almost a year old. We started thinking about it. It's been more than six months of work. We spoke to nearly 120 people. Half of them were farmers. 
So within that idea of public interest reporting, you're still able to bring to bear resources that wouldn't normally be available to other journals. And I wonder what sort of journals you are reporting for, because as you say, you're creating, you're doing this great big investigation where there are lots of journalists working on the same investigation, the same story, but then those stories are being pitched or placed in different journals around the European Union and elsewhere. Let me give you a couple of examples of how it works. So for this particular investigation on Copacajeca, we worked with half a dozen media partners that include Politico, uh, Europe that did the overarching story on Brussels. We worked with El Confidencial in Spain, Oco Press in Poland, uh, Libertatia in Romania, Denwatch, which is in Denmark, and NRC in the Netherlands. Each media partner also brings their special skills within them, their knowledge of the country's context, the culture, the issues, and of course, crucially, the language skills as well, and are able to write the story from very similar angle, but with different details. And you are right in that we are also able to bring in a different set of, I guess, skills. Um, you know, so I guess in many ways, I am an old fashioned reporter journalist. I just talk to as many people as possible, read as many things as possible, and just report, 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 right? Build trust, build relationships. But we also have at Lighthouse Reports people who do what we call money flows. So people who can read annual accounts and look at financial statements and find things that are interesting or, you know, red flags. We have people who look at open source intelligence. So being able to use what's available on the internet to track people, see what's going on. Uh, We have people who are able to crunch data. So, you know, use massive amount of databases to then turn it into something that is understandable and and interesting and, and make sense of it. That's how we worked last year as well when we were doing this investigation into uh, whether excessive speculation in the commodity markets might be contributing to food price inflation. And of course that excessive speculation work that you did was also uh, something that we covered on this podcast and you came and spoke to us very kindly then. But the point I was really driving at is that the work that Lighthouse Reports does is actually really different to the kind of reporting that often takes place at other media outlets and it's really important and you've illustrated that beautifully. So we've talked about uh, what Copacajaca is, we've talked about what Lighthouse Reports is and why you're investigating it. What did you find out? A few things. Um, so at the risk of sounding repetitive, I have to say again that we found out that Copacajaca is one of the most powerful farm lobby groups in Europe, has a lot of power and sway in Brussels, and it also has privileged access to three very key level of EU institutions. And by that, I mean the Commission, the Parliament and the Council. But, and this is a is a big but, we also found out that they represent mostly the interests of the big industrial farmers and cooperatives and not the small and medium-sized farmers that actually make up the bulk of European agriculture. We also found out that their membership numbers are opaque, unavailable, unrealistic or unreliable. It is nowhere near 22 million. Um, we also found out that a lot of small farmers, young farmers, feel actually neglected, unrepresented and disagreed with the positions that the Copacajeca has taken in Brussels. And these include things like being one of the biggest spoilers of efforts to make European farming more sustainable. That's the last point. And when I say, you know, the biggest spoiler, what do I mean? Well, because they have fought against a lot of environmental provisions under the common agriculture policy, as well as under the farm to fork strategy that includes fighting against efforts to restore degraded natural areas, to reduce pesticide use, 
and also to link farm subsidies to environmental outcomes. And it's interesting, of course, that you're talking about the way in which Copa Jaca has this sort of privileged access to these various different arms of the European Union. But of course, the farm to fork strategy and the Green Deal were not managed in the traditional way, were they? They were underneath the provisions of DG Sante, which is the sort of the consumer and environment end of the European Commission, rather than DG Agri. So that must have concerned them a little. Digisante, like you said, is, you know, is the health and food safety arm of it. And it's really interesting because, you know, uh, within the commission, DG Agri, which is the Directorate General on Agricultural and Rural Development, is the traditional ally of Copacujeca. Um, They're very, very close. Their offices are like, what, two minutes walk from each other in Brussels. This is not pure conjecture. Yeah, this is based on interviews with commission officials, including those who used to work with DG Agri. And you know, what they told us is was that, you know, a lot of the hostility around farm to fork was very high from the get-go. And part of this is due to the fact that, like you said, Fenlo, that it was put under Gigi Sante and not under DG Agri. And this feeling of indignation that an outsider, an outside department um, that is not from part of this iron triangle uh, is daring to make agricultural policy. And just very briefly, what do I mean by iron triangle? That's an academic term, but I think it's a fascinating term and it's also very vivid, right? It just conjures up this sort of immovable, very tight, closed loop network. And essentially it refers to the legislative arm, the executive arm, and the interest groups. And here, when I say interest groups, it's not even all farming groups, but mainly Copacujeca and, you know, big farm unions that are members of Copacujeca, all working together when it comes to agricultural policymaking. And it's very hard for anybody else to come in. I just want to go back to the role of the DGs, because I think we need to be careful not to suggest uh, or not to sort of fall into the trap that Copa Kajeka might like us to fall into, of suggesting that DG Santi never had anything to do with agriculture, you know, in yeah, previous yeah. years. Because, of course, you know, they did. Uh, DG Santi was responsible for food labelling, for example, and, yeah. uh, and, and a lot of environmental elements as well, which would have, uh, you know, impacted on farmers. So yeah. it wasn't entirely out of nowhere, but but I can I no. can understand that Copa Jaca might have felt slightly wrong-footed. But I just wonder, you know, in terms of that membership issue, uh, you know, the inflation of their numbers, there are other organisations, you know, lobbying for other farmers in Europe. And perhaps we'll talk about those a bit later. But just does it matter that Copa Jaca's membership numbers are a bit inflated when, after all, farmers, including farm businesses, including, you know, large-scale farm interests do need to be represented in Brussels. You know, Vanot, I think it absolutely matters that Copacujeca may be inflating their membership numbers. And that's precisely because farmers must be represented at the European level, right? We tend to wax lyrical about the virtues of farming and how important farmers are. And yet it is also a profession that is very often looked down upon. And, you know, it's almost in many ways a dying breed because where would we be without farmers, right? But the fact that Copacujeca is only representing a small subset of farmers is a big problem because it affects the kind of policies that are being implemented, which benefit only the few, not the many. Let me just give you three very quick examples. Number one, Romania 
has the highest number of farms in the European Union, 2.9 million. But AAC is a coalition of four farm unions um, that are members of Copacujeca in Romania. Their press releases uh, repeatedly say that they represent 3,500 farmers. Yeah. Second... Um, it's quite a big gap there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, quite quite a big gap there. Second, in Denmark, the Danish um, Food and Agriculture Council is the only member of Copacujeca. And we were looking at the annual reports. And between 2021 and 2016, we noticed that their membership numbers increased by 5,000 in terms of farmers, which was interesting because pretty much in almost every country in the European Union, the number of farmers have been going down. So we sort of asked, is Denmark an exceptional case? What is happening? We couldn't really get an answer. But in the 2022 annual report, that membership number disappeared. So we couldn't really find out what was happening. We couldn't, we, we don't want to accuse them of doing anything wrong because it might just be a methodology issue, right? And we wanted to know, but we couldn't find out. Um, and lastly, Spain probably has the most comprehensive data sets when it comes to numbers. And even then, the three unions that make up members of Copacujeca represents 40%. So that's what I meant by the fact that it is a problem that the biggest seat at the table is reserved for the group that only represent a small subset. I'm not saying farmers shouldn't be represented. There should be a multitude of farmer groups at the table, not just Copacujeca, particularly because right, European farming is at a crisis and we really need young farmers, small farmers who are dealing with skyrocketing prices, unreliable weather, you know, heavily consolidating industry and a war at their doorstep, you know, to really be empowered to tackle all the challenges. And I fear that's not what they're doing. Jimmy, we're talking about Copacujeca because it claims to speak for European farmers. And in doing so, as we've heard, it gets highly privileged access to the European Commission. Do you recognise any symmetry at all between Copa's approach in the EU and the National Farmers Union in the United Kingdom? Thanks for having me on, Finlow. It's, it's great to be here. I hadn't actually appreciated how much I wanted to talk about this topic until I heard Finn describe what's happening at EU level. And I think the reality is there are so many similarities. This is going to slightly sound like I'm parroting what Finn has just said. <laughs> so... Bear with me. It's, it's okay. Uh, We've left the European Union. Therefore, we have to have our own conversations. It's, it's different. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, in, in, in the UK, the National Farmers Union, which also has devolved nation offshoots, so the Scottish National Farmers Union, Welsh National Farmers Union, etc., it, it has traditionally been seen as the farming union. So, it's been seen to be representing all farmers and so inevitably has had privileged access to government. I don't think we should really be surprised by this. I think this is what you would expect of a, of a body kind of presenting itself in those terms. And in some ways, philosophically, I don't think that necessarily has to be a problem. I think the problem comes from the activity and what's actually coming out of these organisations. And in the UK, the NFU has about 50,000 members, and there's no doubt that those members are drawn from all sides of the farming spectrum. So I suppose the question is not whether they have those members in their organisation. It comes back to what Thin said is, are they actually representing them in policy discussions? And I think the evidence, the, the kind of clear evidence in the UK is that they're not. 
And I think the people, the farmers who are falling out the bottom end tend to be small farmers. And I was just running the stats earlier on the DEFRA website, just to remind myself of the kind of the farm size picture in the UK. 76% of farms in the UK are under 100 hectares. And there's no doubt you could consider that a small farm. The average farm size in the UK is, is, is 90 hectares. So essentially, if you're looking at a distribution of farms in the UK, you're talking about the vast majority who are small and arguably not being represented by the NFU who are the farming voice. That's a really huge problem. Some have argued historically that the NFU as a result isn't a union. That's a kind of possibly a separate debate. And then actually another main similarity of what we're seeing in the UK is there's been a very similar report on the NFU as Lighthouse have just done on Copaco Jaker. It was in 2016 called Understanding the NFU by the Ethical Consumer Research Association. And again, it was looking into all the funding streams, the lobbying, the economic interest, the farming interests. That's the that's the background, really. Um, Jimmy, just before you go on, yeah, yeah. you know, we're talking here in 2023, and if we went back to 1970 or 1980, when perhaps farming was much more homogenous, do you think that things have changed over the course of the last 20 or 30 years and moved from this kind of you know group where largely farmers, you know, dairy farmers did one thing, arable farmers did another, um, and and that this has become more broken up over the course of time, and so that legitimate has gradually been eroded. I think absolutely the, the legitimacy has been eroded. I, I, could, I probably couldn't really put my finger on why that is. I think so many things have changed over the last 50 years. I think the role of government and the perception of government's role has, has massively changed. I, I think we can also assume that there are lots of things that were probably quite similar 50 years ago. Certainly the organic movement was up and running then, although inevitably it would have had far fewer members. I think the overall perhaps independence of certain parts of the farming sector has probably changed. I think there's... I, I certainly see more farmers now wanting to do things their own way. I would imagine that 50 years ago, perhaps that wasn't quite the case. And also, you could probably make an argument that agribusiness was not as powerful 50 years ago as it was today. And there's a big, you know, I have a big question of the extent to which agribusiness is influencing NFU activity, which then goes on to influence government policy. If, you know, if 76% of members of the NFU, assuming that that 50,000 is roughly split as, as UK farms are split, uh, are, yeah, if, if they're not being represented, someone else is in, is someone else is exerting influence and and it's not it's not immediately clear to me who that is. There's definitely a lack of transparency. And perhaps just picking up on this environmental issue, which clearly seems to have been, as in the Copaco Jaker, hampering environmental progress at EU level. I think I would say it's harder to judge in the UK. I think there's there's, there's definitely some things that haven't been happening. And so the question is, how involved have the, have the NFU been involved in that? I think I've certainly seen examples where the government have been somewhat exasperated by the NFU's intransigence on some issues and perhaps pushing through legislation in spite of NFU opposition. I think we need to kind of highlight the fact that Martin Lyons of the Nature Friendly Farming Network is now gaining significant traction in parliamentary circles. Inevitably, that's because there's been a gap that he has stepped into that the NFU probably weren't filling. Perhaps more recently, on the back of cost of living and Ukraine, 
food security suddenly ramped up the agenda and you can't avoid that read between the lines aspect of food security, which is that we need to stick to business as usual. And I think that does seem to have had more traction than some of the other confounding things that perhaps the NFU have been up to because food security is emotive and and I think the public have kind of cottoned onto that. One of the things that I think I've noticed over the course of the last few years is the way in which farm incomes have to an extent become more decoupled from farm support. And in the past, uh, there was you know arguably a role for uh, a farmers union to be out there essentially arguing with the boss, you know, when uh, so much of the funding for agriculture was coming from government in one way or another, whether that was through CAP or, or, or whatever else. Uh, and therefore, there was a need to be able to sort of negotiate on behalf of farmers in that way. And I wonder if you feel over the last few years when we've been discussing this sort of post-Brexit world that we're, we're entering into, whether that history of arguing with the boss, that they didn't, qu- they didn't come out of that quickly enough and move themselves into a leadership position in order to be able to take a full advantage and to genuinely represent the, the forward and the future interests of farmers in the UK. No, I think, I think you're absolutely right. And actually, when you talk to a farmer who's openly debating with themselves about whether they stay a member of the NFU, I think that gets at the heart of their debate. It's this, this organisation has historically represented my interests, possibly focused around subsidies and financial payments. And they're looking at the current scenario and perhaps where the agricultural sector is moving towards a more regenerative agroecological path. And they're, and they're not seeing that relevant. So the question around whether whether they should be a member of the NFU suddenly comes up. So I think that's, yeah, that's absolutely happening. Someone pointed this out to me earlier today, actually, that the level of presence that the NFU had at Groundswell, which you could argue is a real bastion of the regenerative movement in the UK, it's a conference that happened a couple of weeks ago, was minimal compared to their presence at some of the more traditional events like cereals. I guess as well, the final thing that I want to sort of talk about in relation to the NFU and the way that it presents itself is the use, and you alluded to this earlier on, the use of the word union. And, you know, union to me, uh, implies an organisation that is representing people who are largely in the same situation. You think of, you know, factory workers or teachers who are arguing and negotiating for new contracts. When I've worked with farmers unions in the past, it has felt much more like a trade association. You have lots of individual independent members who are actively in competition with each other rather than a union of members who are all working for the same boss and, and need that contractual assistance. And of course, Pasture for Life doesn't use the word union. You are blatantly a trade organisation. You run Pasture for Life, a farmers organisation representing producers who've undergone agroecological or regenerative transition. So I wonder, from your perspective, bearing in mind all of that past conversation about the NFU and the strength of its voice, how difficult is it for you to get your voice and your members' voice heard at government level? It's pretty difficult, actually. Um, I mean, to, to begin, to put this in in context, I said the NFU has got approximately 50,000 members. Don't quote me on that, but that's the that's the rule of thumb I've got. We have a 1,000 members who are paid up and give us money every year and about 5,000 members who are on our kind of marketing databases. So that's, that's kind of our immediate reach, not including other kind of marketing channels. So it's not, I mean, I suppose I don't find it that surprising that we're not taken as seriously as the NFU based on those headline figures. But 
coming back to the previous conversation, the direction of travel to me seems pretty clear. And I, I, I would argue that we're very much positioned at the right point in that direction of travel for, for, for farmers to take us very seriously. And I would hope over time that the government see that and see our role in the, in the future farming system rather than just looking at the basic statistics now. And actually that what the government are advocating for and trying to promote through their farming schemes, we, we're delivering on the ground. So a kind of a union between us and the government in some capacity is, is, is going to help us both achieve our aims. I think the, the kind of the day-to-day -day reality of our engagements with government, it can be quite good face-to-face. -face. There's no doubt about that. They're receptive when we're talking to them. The challenge comes after that point when nothing happens, things fall into the ether and it all goes quiet. But I, I, I suppose I should add, and I hope this is something that would resonate with all of our members, is we are focused on change at ground level. And I suppose I, we don't always see policy having a significant role in that. That's not to say policy is not important, but we can deliver substantial change by working farmer to farmer, almost one farmer at a time. And we're having a lot of success at doing that at the moment. I think policy will become an increasing focus for us as we grow. But at the moment, frankly, I find it far more exciting to be involved at that level. And I look at some of the policy debates happening and some of the stuff that isn't happening, perhaps in the policy sphere, and occasionally kind of turn the cheek and think, I, I don't want to be part of that. I hear that. And, and much as I do hear it, I'm going to still stick on that government question for a moment, because I think you're, you know, <laughs> what you're say is absolutely right that there's it's so much more rewarding often talking with you know individual farmers and groups of farmers about the change that they're making irregardless of, of what's going on in government um, rather than talking to government itself but you've just illustrated very beautifully there the idea that your membership is a 50th of the uh, the membership of the NFU and so the question is around how the government should treat you should it give you a 50th of the time and I think you know the way that you've pitched that there is that you're talking about the way that pasture for life is in many ways representing the future of what agriculture should be, the future of the way that livestock should be managed. And in that way, there's a degree to which government should recognise the need to listen to you, to listen to the expertise of your farmers. And actually, the NFU could really help its members by listening to you and engaging with you much more directly. And so I wonder whether there are perhaps ways in which you think the NFU could work more closely closely with not just yourself, but other smaller, smaller farming organisations to help bring their members into the place where they're delivering resilient agriculture in terms of uh, food security, their own business resilience, uh, and the kind of, you know, that broader community security question uh, that we've touched on before. We would love to work with the NFU more closely, no doubt about it. I, I hope this conversation isn't making that job harder. <laughs> um, and as, as I said earlier, there's also no doubt that the NFU represents, depending on how you define that word, farmers from across the spectrum. And there's also no doubt that the people who work for the NFU represent a broad array of interests and views on farming, food and life. So there isn't really an intrinsic reason why we couldn't and shouldn't work with the NFU. And actually, if it does happen, and there are there are snippets of it happening at the moment, it will happen at grassroots level. It won't be at that top level, the kind of policy level. It will be working with local NFU reps, getting them working with our regional groups and our farmers on the ground and bringing the expertise that we've developed in our organisation to bear for NFU members. And I should, you know, I should state the obvious, but you can, for example, be a member of NFU and Pasture for Life or NFU and another small farming organisation. They're not mutually exclusive. And so actually that sort of collaborative working is really where we see the answers 
in the kind of the food system challenges. Uh, that's why community is at the heart of our approach and getting farmers learning from farmers. And actually, last week I was in Cumbria and over dinner I chatted to the local NFU rep and there was, you know, he, he was clearly a mainstay of the local farming community. And so my my kind of slight frustration or perhaps sadness for him is that that role he has at, at ground level is not really being backed up all the time by what happens at the policy at the kind of at the, the top echelons of the NFU. I, th- I think that's, that's a bit of a shame, really, because I think he was clearly doing a great job. You know, one thing I do want to chuck into this where we are, where we're kind of frankly desperate to work with the NFU more closely is around abattoirs where, to be blunt, I think they've shown a really shocking lack of leadership on the issue. Last week, there was an abattoir that closed in Cumbria. So I think we've got about 48 small abattoirs left in the country. And, and the that's, number- that's the point, isn't it? It's small abattoirs that we're talking about rather than abattoirs in general. Yes. Well, I think it's, it's particularly small abattoirs, but we do now have less than 100 abattoirs in the country in total. So even if you look at that total number, it, it, it's an issue. And again, if coming back to the fact that 76% of all farms in England are below 100 hectares, those small small abattoirs are vital for that constituency. So I really think that we need to see a bit more leadership and collaboration on that issue from the NFU. And it's it, it could be really small things in terms of impetus like that, which create the sorts of bridges that we all need in the farming sector to solve this kind of potential polarisation that we have. And, and as you say, small abattoirs are absolutely critical, not only to you know smaller farmers in general, but to the delivery of agroecology and regenerative agriculture and more independent supply chains. If there isn't that facility for farmers uh, to be able to buy back their own stock so that they can sell it, and, and there aren't abattoirs able to service uh, them in that way, you know, within a, a reasonable radius, then it really stops them from being able to make the profit that they ought to be doing. And one of those issues is the five percent rule, where at the moment there's an upper limit for small abattoirs of a uh, thousand livestock units before things start getting much more complicated and expensive in terms of operating vets. And if that five percent rule, which many European Union countries uh, already use, then those small abattoirs would be able to earn more money. They would be able to uh, potentially, you know, go through five or even 10,000 livestock units uh, over the course of the average year, which of course would make a huge difference Mm. to them. I mean, there's another big point. You mentioned the importance of abattoirs for regenerative farming agroecology. Abattoirs are also vital for the delivery of natural capital. So there's billions now circling the, the land sector to deliver on climate and biodiversity, that doesn't always stack up without the ability to slaughter animals. So I would hope that some of that funding goes towards sorting this problem out. Yeah, really, really good point. Thin, let me come back to you and talk about your investigation again. And just ask, since your investigation was published, have you been aware of any pushback from Copa Kajeko itself? No, um, we have not received any response whatsoever um, from Copa Kajeko. Are you just just a fly on the windscreen and they don't think you're worth bothering with or have they just not quite picked up yet on what you've been reporting? Look, Finlow, your guess is as good as mine. I have absolutely no idea. One uh, possibility, of course, is that maybe they think it is easier if they ignore it, that perhaps then it'll just quietly disappear. Yes. Um, Yeah, I I can only guess. But no, we have not received any response whatsoever. We have heard, interestingly, we have heard from a lot of small farmers that we haven't spoken to in Ireland and in other places saying, yeah, we're not members or we disagree with that. But from the institutions themselves, uh, including from the 
member unions um, that we exposed, uh, but that our media partners exposed, nothing, not not a peep. Well, it's interesting, isn't it, that uh, mm-hmm. even though you've not heard from Copa Kajeka themselves, that you have actually heard from those farmers that are being represented through your report and that there are you know, more people sticking up their hands saying, me too. Now, I noticed one comment on Twitter from a senior national policy advisor who said that, in his view, the current European Commission, which runs until the end of October 2020, is much more NGO-focused than previous commissions. And he says that the Commission's appetite to engage with farmers and farmers' representatives at the highest levels has been very limited, in his words, and that this lack of dialogue might have led the Commission to suffer regulatory capture by other interests, or as he suggested, regulatory overstretch. So is that something you've observed? Do you think those are fair criticisms? I actually want to push back on that a little bit because I find that argument to be a little bit disingenuous and i also don't think that it's substantiated at least not based on what we have discovered let's first break down the whole uh, criticism around the commission we all know that within the european union it's a trilogue right so the commission is just one part of the trilogue um there's still the parliament and the council so even if this particular commission seems to engage less with farmers and farmers representatives even though that is not what we have discovered from our investigation still has access to the other two. In fact, no other groups have the same access to the council, which is the government, right? The government, the member states of the European Union, Esko Bukajeka, they are the only organization that is invited to brief the presidency of the EU council before every agri-fish council meeting. That's the meeting of agriculture ministers. So they still, you know, they still have pretty good access. That's number one. Number two, you know, some people that we've spoken to, including those from the commission, have said that the previous commissions have actually been too close to farming and farm groups and farming interests, and that the access this time is perhaps a little bit fairer. But also, I think uh, the other point is if you actually look at policies that have passed or not passed, I think it's pretty clear that NGOs have been on the losing end for years and years and years. Just look at the common agriculture policy. One of the biggest differences that we have found when speaking to small and medium scale farmers is that they would really want the cap to be fairer, right? Which means they want to have a ceiling in terms of the amount of money that big farms can get. Uh, So some of that money could be redirected to small farmers. That has not happened for years and years. Redistribution has not been done until the beginning of this year, the new cap. There is a compulsory mechanism that does some of that. Having said that, even though it is called compulsory mechanism, there is a loophole in that number one, member states are responsible for the implementation. Number two, you can derogate if you can show that redistribution is uh, done in a different way. So countries, member states have actually uh, used derogations for that. And I think that is a clear example that shows that, you know, NGOs and people who've been pushing have not succeeded. You know, in some ways, what myself and many others that we've interviewed have observed is not the commission suffering from regulatory overstretch or regulatory capture by other interests, but that 
big farm lobbies are flexing their muscles and they're interpreting agriculture policy in an extremely narrow manner, not looking at the externalities of large-scale intensive agriculture on the wider society, including the consumers and the environment, but focusing purely on the economic profits and benefits. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think, you, you know, the way that you framed it, it seems to me to be that, you know, it's not that agricultural interests have become less important, but that there has been an increase in the level of importance of those sort of broader civil society elements. And that's not dissimilar to conversations that have been happening here uh, in, in relation to public goods uh, in the UK mm. and elsewhere, you know, within um, the EU talking about the Green Deal and so on, that there is a recognition today that agriculture isn't just about producing food. It's about producing food and climate change mitigation and adaptation and nature regeneration and, you know, all these various different other things. Yeah. And so by shifting the responsibility across to DG Santi, it's not that DG Agri doesn't have, you know, any skin in the game. It's just that they, they're voice has changed a little bit. And I think it's also worth just explaining to people, because there are international listeners here, you know, not just from within the EU, what the different roles are of these three elements of the uh, of the European Union. So the council, as you say, is the council of ministers. So if it's, uh, you know, a, a kind of a high level meeting, then it might be prime ministers that are coming together. But if it's agriculture, it'll be agriculture ministers. Parliament then is the members of the European Parliament elected from uh, the 27 now. Is that right? Yes. Um, members yes. of the European Union and then the Commission, which is effectively the civil service. A new legislation and directives can come either from Parliament or from the Commission, can't they? Uh, but then, of course, they have to be agreed by the Council of Ministers. Usually the Commission is the one that has the responsibility of prepping, planning and drafting legislation. And then they would put it you know, forward to the parliament. And then, of course, it'll also come to the council. And then there's a trilogue, right? I mean, of course, there are multiple steps in between the DG Agri, uh, the director general under the commission will also have stakeholder groups that are known as civil dialogue groups, uh, where Copacujeca has seats as well as other NGOs and groups that can provide feedback, even in the drafting stage of these legislation. And then it goes to the parliament. And then you've got different parliamentary committees that will then debate on these laws and legislation, um, vote within their own committees before it comes to the plenary. And then, yes, like you said, you know, in the council where the ministers or the president or the national lawmakers will then have that discussion among themselves as well. Uh, and when I mentioned the parliament, what I really meant was that the parliament is able to call on the commission to investigate, uh, yes. call on the commission yes. to uh, to produce particular bits yes, absolutely. of uh, new directives. Um, Jimmy, there's no doubt in the UK that government has become much better at listening to NGOs. Uh, and, and I think, you know, many of us were surprised at the extent to which um, government and DEFRA listened to uh, a broader base, not just the NFUs of the world, but to, you know, lots of civil society stakeholders in, in that sort of post-referendum conversation. So how well do you think the government has balanced the competing needs of different food system stakeholders in the last few years? I think in some ways, the answer is too well. And that we've essentially in our policy making, we've we've incorporated a vast array of 
new and varying and often opposing interests. And that hasn't necessarily led us down the path that we, certainly on our side of the fence, where we really want to get to. I think you could you could definitely make a case that we have made some progress. There's no doubt that the current environmental subsidy approach is a vast improvement on the area-based payment approach. I think you've got to look to the Conservative Environment Network as one of the key drivers of that change in the, in the Tory party. So there was an element of things aligning for a certain group of people at a certain time post-Brexit. But I think there's a, I mean, my, my personal view is that we're doing a little bit too much sitting on the fence at the moment. I think we're so concerned that every type of farmer has got a clear next step, which don't get me wrong, that's a valid approach. I think what's what's really lacking is a vision. And I think this focus on making sure we've every stakeholder know, kind of knows where they're going next year means that we've lost that direction of travel. And for me, there's so many good things happening in this kind of agroecological regenerative space. And they all seem to be positive for farmers, positive for farm businesses, positive for the environment, animal health, human health. And I just wish the government would really get behind that in a visionary way so that a farm who's starting to reduce their inputs, for example, doesn't think that at some point they're going to decide to stop doing that because that just makes no sense at all. Once once you start doing it, you're not going to stop. And we can all we, we can all have something to coalesce around. I think that's really missing. So when we talk about this polarisation and we talk about the issues between different bits of the sector, I think some of that could go away if government were being really visionary and taking leadership on some of this stuff. You kind of preempted my next question, but I want to, I want to ask it anyway. Way because it's it's just going to frame things in a slightly different way. And I guess it's a sort of philosophical question, really, about the role of government, what government is there for. And so I wonder whether mm. you think that balance, I mean, you said that you thought that the government perhaps balanced things too well, but, but is balance the role of government? Is that what government is there for, to listen to different opposing voices and find a, a route through? Or should ministers be taking a stronger lead to ensure agricultural land use changes that deliver food production and action on the nature and climate emergencies. I suppose I think there's no there's no easy answer. You could argue that the political cycle being four to five years necessitates strong action, but also creates a problem when there's strong action and that flips every four to five years and the people who are actually having to deliver this are left high and dry in a kind of boom and bust um, approach. That kind of pushes you towards this kind of incremental approach where possibly balance becomes more important in that mix. I suppose I can't help think that given the current situation we're in with climate, with biodiversity and the speed at which we need to act, we do need stronger leadership. I also have an intrinsic view that the government should be the highest buyer of all of these outcomes. So there's, there's, there's no other stakeholder that is looking at health, climate, biodiversity, land use in general all in one go, there's lots of stakeholders are looking at one of those at, at a particular point, And the government seems to be at the moment taking the view that it'd be better to get those other stakeholders to pay for individual parts of that whole. But I think that the danger in that, and I think the government are arguably best placed to do that. And I think that requires leadership and vision, and it all kind of ties in together. So I think balance is a short term thing, vision is a long term thing. Finn, we know that Copa Kajaka is powerful. But as the advisor I mentioned earlier suggested, 
smaller farming groups and NGOs are now more powerful too. Do you think that the pressure from citizens to solve the climate and nature crisis, not to mention other health and food system challenges, is becoming so great that sooner or later Copacajaca will simply have to embrace a regenerative transition or else lose its legitimacy even amongst its more traditional stakeholders? The optimistic part of me hope that that is what is going to happen. Look, the fact is, Copacajaca has successfully lobbied to postpone, delay, block a lot of ambitions on environmental uh, provisions um, that include, you know, halving pesticide use by 2030. And again, very similar to what Jimmy said, you know, citing uh, food security fears because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, food security and hunger has been cited as a justification to sort of push back and delay and derail We're these actually, it efforts. requires the reverse. Exactly. And that's also completely at odds with a petition that was done um, for Save bees and farmers, where you know over one million citizens in the European Union actually signed that petition, and more than six hundred scientists in the bloc also wanted to have more ambitious targets around reducing, you know, uh, the use of synthetic pesticides and fertilizers. So yes, there is pressure from citizens, but we have yet to see any real impacts. Look, to be absolutely fair, I'm not saying that this is all just Copacajeca refusing to move because there are a lot of other actors who really want to maintain the status quo, right, when it comes to these things. The fact is, though, if small farming groups and NGOs are now more powerful, why haven't we seen more redistribution of income from the cap? Why haven't governments taken into account, you know, their citizens' demand to for farming to become much more sustainable, uh, to support agroecological transition, uh, regenerative practices? You know, the transition, I think, is inevitable, according to experts and farmers that we've spoken to. And there's a lot that farmers can gain from it. And I think, you know, what we've heard from Jimmy just proves that. Studies have also shown that farmers have a lot to gain from the transition by delaying the inevitable, by pushing back against these changes. What Kobukajika currently doing is making life harder and harder for farmers who are already facing the consequences of climate change. It's not just the floods, the wildfires, the droughts. It's not just happening in other continents. It's also happening in Europe. And defending the status quo is not benefiting the farmer. So I really hope, I truly hope that Copacajeca will stop being so defensive and take a proactive approach to help farmers transition into a more regenerative system. I think they have a lot to gain from it. Their farmers have a lot to gain from it. Countries, consumers have a lot to gain from it. I do, however, worry that the priorities of farmers that Copacajeca represent are diametrically different from the small and medium-sized farmers that make up the bulk of European agriculture. And I worry that, that when a change finally comes, it might be too late. I hope I am wrong. I would be so happy to be proven wrong. Jimmy, do you think that the days of large farming sector voices such as the NFU are passing and that lobbying will perhaps become more fractured as we move forwards with different sectors promoting their own competing objectives and perhaps more regional policy variation rather than simply national decisions? I think it's a really interesting question. I, I, I would echo what Finn said. I think farmers are leading this. And so there's a, you know, there's a big question of whether any organisation gets on board with the direction 
direction that farmers on the ground are going with. And I think that that direction is, is pretty clear. I think you could easily see a scenario where a group of those farmers get involved with the NFU, which is still a, essentially a democratically constituted organisation. So you could easily see that group working its way up the hierarchy and, and taking the leadership of the NFU in, in a different course. Uh, but equally, you could see the business as usual interests remaining in charge and perhaps stymieing uh, really progressive policy. And in which case, I think the fracturing that we have seen, I think there's, there's no doubt about that, will continue. Um, on, the, on the regional side, I think regional local working is on the rise. We're definitely seeing it and promoting it within Pasture for Life. I think it's far more relevant for a farmer to be engaging with their other local farmers to find solutions to the problems they're facing. Um, and I think that's probably going to happen not only in Pasture for Life, but across the board. I think that's as important for things like supply chains as it is for land use strategies, water catchment management. I think there's loads of issues that require local regional working. And I think that's probably going to turbocharge a more regional way of working at policy level. It's hard to really read the runes on that, but um, that does seem to be the direction of travel for me. And that's where we have to leave it. Um, it's been such an interesting conversation. I'm really sorry that's all we have time for. Thanks so much to both of you uh, for your time. I'd like to thank my guests. Jimmy Woodrow and Thinlay Wynn. If you've enjoyed listening, please come back and listen to more. Tell your friends, like us, review us and share our links. Farmgate is funded by Sankalpa. It's part of the 8.9 Hectares News Channel and you can join the conversation on social media by searching for 8.9 HA. I've been Finlow Castain. Bye for now.